ReachMD XM157 presents a special series, Insights in Future Medicine. You're listening to ReachMD XM, the channel for medical professionals. Let me describe a scenario that's probably familiar to a lot of you. You're working in a small or even a medium-sized hospital these days. You might be the primary care doc or the ER physician. Your patient needs a specialty that your hospital doesn't have. What do you do? Did you ever think your specialist would come to the bedside via the computer? Yes, it's called telemedicine and it's here to stay. But what are the rules? Who's going to pay for it? And is it secure? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. James Marcin, an associate professor at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento, California. Today we're discussing telemedicine as a way to bring the consultant to the bedside sooner and faster. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us today, Jim. We know you're very busy. Oh, thank you, Sherry. It's my pleasure. Now, just because not everybody listening knows what telemedicine is, can you tell us about it? Sure. Telemedicine is the practice of medicine over a distance using telecommunications technology. And this typically does not include telephone medicine or fax medicine. There's two general types. One is the live interactive where you have a video conferencing unit on either end with a monitor. And the specialist on one end is able to see and talk to the patient and referring provider on the other end, and they see and hear each other live. And then the other kind is called store and forward telemedicine, where images are captured or video is captured, pictures of the retina, for example, or an echocardiography, is and that's sent over the internet to a remote site for the specialist to review at a later time. Now, do a lot of maybe smaller sites that are starting out with this, do they start with the video webcam interaction and then realize it can be more than that and grow? Yeah, I think there has to be some commitment. And to a certain degree, you get what you pay for in terms of the video conferencing equipment and the telecommunications. So if you start too low in, that might leave a bad taste in the patient's and the provider's mouth. So there's something to be said about starting off with the good equipment the right the first time. Do all of them allow for, say, one physician in another location who's a specialist, do they all allow him to watch the other physician's exam or to visualize the patient or the lesion or the acute belly, whatever you're looking at? If they're into the consultations and getting assistance and talking to other docs, generally speaking, yes. And they participate in the history and the physical exam with the remote provider. It can also be done where the remote provider is not even in the room. The patient comes into there and the doc can just go through a lot of questions. And as you can imagine, some specialties work a lot better for this, like psychiatry and dermatology, endocrinology, as opposed to other types of specialties where physical exam is very important, like sports medicine or rheumatology. How do the patients react? Generally speaking, they love it. There's been many, many satisfaction studies in the medical literature that have been published, and generally speaking, it's thought equal to in-person consultations where you see this specialist. Sometimes it's even higher if the patient has to otherwise travel long distances to see the specialist. Now, what about HIPAA and confidentiality? How is that addressed? Great question. So the whole telecommunications has to be secure. Many of the higher-end video conferencing units have built-in encryption. So the video and audio is captured on one end, it's encrypted, sent over the Internet, and unencrypted on the remote end. That's if you're using the Internet, you have to be worried about that. But other telecommunication systems like a fractionated T1 or ISDN are secure in and of themselves. 
also just requires that whatever images are captured have to be dealt with as if you're dealing with them in person. So generally, there's, there's no HIPAA issues if both sides stick to their general HIPAA guidelines. So the patients don't have to sign any separate release for this to be transmitted to another physician, another institution that's covered? The American Telemedicine Association generally recommends that prior to doing a telemedicine consultation, you obtain the standard consent from the patient that you're going to be transmitting this data over some secure fashion to a remote physician. Some states, like California, actually have state legislation involved where you do have to do this prior, if possible. If it's an emergency situation, clearly, with any consent, you don't need to get it. But generally speaking, people try and obtain consent from the, the patient or their parents prior to doing telemedicine. Is the information stored or is it not stored at the end of a consultation? I'm talking specifically about audiovisual images, not x-rays or... So generally speaking, they are not stored. You know, it's uncommon for if our endocrinologist or dermatologist or psychiatrist to record any of it. They just treat it as if they were in the room. And so they're writing down notes and record it that way. There are some models that record. We have a child abuse model where we help remote providers, our specialists help remote providers do physical and sexual abuse exams. Much of this information is recorded on a DVD, and then it's treated as the medical record and becomes part of the evidence. So most of the backup then is the, the written, the standard written documentation of the encounter or the consult. Right, that's the standard. And then that's adequate for insurance and billing also? Right, the same standards apply. Your note has to reflect as if you're seeing that patient in person. And for regarding the physical exam, a lot of times you can say per doctor or I'm able to see this or read this off the monitor in terms of like the belly exam and things like that. And that's generally speaking adequate. You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, and I'm speaking with Dr. James Marcin, and we're discussing telemedicine, bringing the specialist to the bedside in a safe way. Now, Dr. Marcin, I also understand this can be a unique business opportunity for some physicians, that some physicians are just starting using telemedicine. Can you tell us something about that? I know of some specialists, for example, that up to a significant proportion of their practice is out of their home. For example, dermatologists, a psychiatrist where they can see patients at remote locations and they can just do it at home. And you can imagine a group of specialists also being able to provide subspecialty services to remote clinics, to hospitals, and that can be either done fee-for-service or on contracted rates with a remote site to give them access to the specialists. But it also goes beyond just that typical outpatient or inpatient consultation. There are models that are going into skilled nursing facilities, hospice care, and pediatrics. That's what I do. There's even a model um, out of New York where they're going into daycare centers, and pediatricians are seeing children in daycare centers of certain companies, contracting rates with those companies to be able to, to see kids that are sick in daycare. One way a pediatrician might do this, I'm just throwing this out there, say three, four days a week in the hospital or the office, and then he may devote a whole day to just doing telemedicine consults? Some people do do that. Yes, we definitely have clinicians that do that within the university system where their whole morning or whole day or afternoon clinic will be over telemedicine. This is within the university system, and of course, you can do this outside as a private physician too. Do you see any limits or restrictions to the to telemedicine and what we're doing with it now? This is, I think, where the technology and telecommunications is way ahead of the 
rules and regulations. I think that some of the biggest barriers that I see have to do with credentialing, interstate licensing, and just getting the insurance companies up to speed with with reimbursing this. But I think that in the end, it's it's a new way of delivering healthcare, and I think that it's just going to be delivered more efficient, improve the quality of care, and it's going to be a good thing, a very good thing for healthcare. Why you know why shouldn't a specialist be able to see and treat a patient? wherever he or she might be able to be at. And let's go back again to some of the legal issues. Are doctors ever tell you that they're afraid of being sued by it? Of all of the telemedicine programs that I'm aware of, none of the lawyers are requiring expanded insurance for this. You know that if you're ever asked over telephone to get involved with the patient's care, that your name's written down and, and you know, you can you'd be pulled in with the lawyers no matter what. Our lawyers in a way, view this as lowering a malpractice threshold because I'm, I'm going to be providing better care when I see the patient and see the other doctor and talk to them than if I do this over the telephone. But there's something called the CTEL or Center for Telehealth and eHealth Law that's online that tracks all of this stuff. And that's a good resource if you have legal issues. Do you ever have physicians tell you they wouldn't get involved because of the legal issues or are you usually able to give them enough information that they relax about it? Sure, it does happen, but I think it's less realistic. I am not familiar with anybody getting sued for doing something over telemedicine. As a matter of fact, I've heard of a couple of cases where hospitals are being sued by patients where a patient has gone in, they've had a bad outcome, they don't have that specialist available, and they sue the hospital and they say, hey, you didn't have that neuroradiologist there, but that's not an excuse. You can have that neuroradiologist over telemedicine. So it may make a new standard of care where the excuse of not having that specialist available is no longer an excuse. Can you give us a few more details about that? I mean, remaining anonymous, of course. Was it a neuroradiology case? Was it the infamous CAT scan or brain drain? Or Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, I think the docs that are asked to be on a prosecuting side at, to this point say, hey, that's not the standard of care, and nobody has been able to pursue these cases yet because it's not fair to for every hospital all of a sudden to have contracted with every specialty there is available. You know, that's not the standard of care yet. Now, at UC Davis, what percent of your consults are more emergent? Do you get more of those than routine? It just depends upon the specialty because I'm a critical care doc and we're in-house, our group is in-house 24-7 in our ICU. We have a telemedicine unit in our ICU. I have one in my office. A couple of us have it at our home. I travel with a webcam with a high-speed VPN internet so I can oh see my God, patients that's great. literally from anywhere, and I have. You can be driving um, down Highway 1, and you can do a <laughs> consult for us. That, that's very good to know. You know, why not? That, that should be the, the future if you have a, a doc that's crazy enough to be with a laptop and a webcam at all times. <laughs> and that's you, right? <laughs> I, I guess. I, I really love 24 it. 24-7, so, yeah. Right. And we have, there's issues with that because we have to have secure lines. We have to have tech support 24-7. And ideally, it's done with the, the person in-house. But if he or she is busy, we have a backup system. So, but that, that's just particular to our ER ICU model.
So what, what advice would you give to, let's say the larger hospitals could contact you and set something up, but there may be smaller rural areas and they may go toward this with some trepidation that maybe it won't work out for them or that somebody won't care enough or get the right information. What type of assurance can you give them that, that this is a reach out and touch and really be an aid to them in times when they can't get the, the ENT or the pediatric intensivist in there? Just the way that you said that, if you just look at the data, the number of consults that are people try and track this through the Office for the Advancement of Telehealth, or OAT. And the number of consultations is growing exponentially. It's available in all 50 states. And it's a growing wave that if you don't become a part of soon, you're just going to get washed by. Already there are facilities that they're changing referral patterns based upon this service. And how many years have you been doing this now? I've been doing it for nine. Our hospital system has been doing it for 15. Just excellent. I want to thank Dr. James Marcin, who's been our guest. We've been discussing telemedicine, bringing the specialist to the bedside. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions on this or any segment, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to a special series, Insights in Future Medicine on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals.